Hello, listeners. Welcome to Superstitions, a Spotify original from Parcast. I'm Alastair Murden. On this show, I explore the history behind some of humanity's oddest beliefs and tell stories explaining these seemingly nonsensical practices, like why we toss salt over our shoulders, cross our fingers for luck, and search for meaning in the heavens above. This episode is part of our summer solstice takeover. Over the next two weeks, we'll be digging into superstitions, myths, and legends of the stars. Check out Mythical Monsters, Tales, and Mythology for more of the special. Astrology was born in Babylon around the second millennium BCE and has been used as a tool to predict the future ever since. Though it outdates most world religions, it's generally thought of as unreliable pseudoscience, a party trick at best. And yet, the stars have accurately predicted some of the most horrific and deadly events in world history. You can find episodes of Superstitions and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. In a moment, the first conjunction of Saturn and Pluto sets the tone for a millennium of chaos. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like... What the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. When we think of astrology, many of us associate it with Nostradamus and the other hocus-pocus that evolved during the Middle Ages, like wearing chicken feet necklaces to ward off the flu or whatever. But astrology has a much more complex and multinational history dating back to ancient Mesopotamia. Centuries ago, the earliest Egyptian farmers counted on the stars to mark time. For instance, when the constellation Sirius appeared overhead every midsummer, signaling the annual flooding of the Nile. Many cultures used the stars as a compass to guide voyagers home. Early Babylonians developed astrology charts to track seasons, creating some of the earliest calendars. At this point, astronomy and astrology were one and the same. But in the 4th century BCE, astrology was introduced to the Greeks. They combined the studies of the stars with their own mythology, deciding that each planet was ruled by a different god from their pantheon. After years of recording planetary movements, the Greeks started to note certain patterns between the planets and corresponding events on Earth. Children born when Mars crossed the constellation Aries tended to be fiery and aggressive. When Mercury's orbit suddenly appeared to change, trade slowed. Using these findings, astrologers developed a set of predictive rules explaining how certain celestial movements affected things on Earth. The rules were tweaked and adjusted over the centuries, eventually becoming what we know today as Western astrology. It's still practiced by spiritualists, mystics, 
and most of Los Angeles County. Now, most modern astrologers don't worship Greek and Roman gods, but they do believe that the movements of the planets and stars can affect what happens on Earth. For example, the sky at the moment of your birth is thought to predict your personality and life path. That's why you probably know whether you're a Capricorn or Taurus, if only as a conversation starter. But the heavens can predict larger events too, some of which can affect the whole world. The outer planets, Uranus, Neptune, and Pluto, have long transits across each sign, sometimes taking 31 years to move across a single constellation. These movements are thought to be subtle but powerful. And when these planets cross other celestial bodies, the results can be cataclysmic. This is especially true when Saturn, the crown jewel of our solar system, gets involved. Saturn is said to be the father of the heavens. He, yes, Saturn is a he, it turns out, delivers karma and rewards hard work with abundance. But he also teaches difficult lessons about humility. He lives in the liminal zone between the fast-moving inner planets and impactful outer planets. One foot in our world, one foot in the next. His transits bring plague, destruction, and occasionally, dance. Today's story is far stranger than fiction. It involves an extremely unusual plague that struck the French hamlet of Strasbourg in 1518. Its likes have never been seen before or since. The heat of summer made Elsa's bedroom stuffy. The 15-year-old woke up sweating, her fine hair matted to the nape of her neck. She rolled out of bed and reluctantly slipped on a bodice and petticoat, wishing she could jump into the lake instead. Elsa jumped as her little brother Peter burst into her room. Quick, he said. Madame Trophea's making a scene. Elsa couldn't get her dress on fast enough. She wasn't normally a gossip, but Madame Trophea had a habit of making her business everyone's. You might think of her as the original Kardashian. Madame Trophea's antics were best digested without context, and this morning did not disappoint. She stood, rather danced, in the town square, flailing her arms like her dress was on fire. She was smiling in the stiff, uncomfortable way of someone trying to cover their embarrassment. What am I looking at? Elsa asked. Peter shrugged. She's been like this all morning. Nobody's sure what's wrong with her. Madame's husband, Monsieur Trophea, stood nearby, looking both outraged and embarrassed at the scene his wife was making. Elsa and Peter couldn't help but laugh. The audacity of Monsieur Trophea to act indignant as though he didn't close down the pub every night. He clearly thought his wife was doing this for attention, but was trying his best to feign concern. He kept looking around like something was dreadfully wrong and insisting that she never acted like this at home. Elsa and Peter watched for a while, waiting to see if any drama would unfold. But sadly, the town was robbed of a public argument. Monsieur Trophea told his wife he'd see her at home, then left. Elsa heard Peter sigh with disappointment. She couldn't have agreed more. Come on, she said. While we're out, we may as well see if there's any bread at the market. 
This was doubtful. A bad wheat crop the year before had led to food shortages all summer. And on the off occasion there was bread to be had, it usually had a nasty, purplish tint and an unusual, some might say rotten, taste. As expected, the market had little to offer today, so Elsa and Peter headed home and spent the afternoon tending to the livestock in the yard. As the afternoon grew long, Mama appeared on the road from town, her basket full of food she'd bartered for. But before Elsa could open her mouth to greet her, Mama said, You won't believe what's happening in the town square. Elsa was surprised. Is Madame Trofea still dancing? Then she's been at it all day. Mama grinned. That's not the half of it. Four other ladies have joined her. Elsa and Peter exchanged glances. Elsa expected this kind of behavior from Madame Trofea. She'd go to any lengths to create drama, just so long as she was the talk of the town. But four more women? Was this some kind of interactive theater performance she didn't know about? The next morning, Elsa headed into town to see if the women were still there. To her shock, the group had doubled and gone co-ed. Eleven men and women danced with that same vacant grin, like joy bordering on psychosis. A couple of the town drunks brought out instruments and started to underscore the dancing. Throughout the day, even more people began to join in, sweat pouring down their faces. Elsa watched in disbelief as her fellow townspeople would slowly gravitate towards the center of town. First, their fingers and knees would begin to jerk. Then, like a spider, the movements would crawl up their arms and down their spines until they were dancing uncontrollably. Madame Trofea looked close to death. She had been dancing for over two days without rest. The bags beneath her weary eyes were heavy and dark, but she continued to dance with the same vigor she'd started with. Her husband was pleading with her to stop, but she clearly couldn't hear him. Any humor Elsa found in this situation was gone. In fact, she was scared for these people who seemed to be in a trance, and she was terrified that she too might join them. As the impromptu flash mob in the square swelled, Elsa's father was called to an emergency town meeting and she decided to tag along. In the chaos, nobody even noticed her slip in and sit at the back of the room. The town elders spent an hour swapping ideas on who they should send for, what they could do, and what was to happen if these people didn't stop. Monsieur Trofeo was especially desperate, worried sick that his wife would soon drop dead. Monsieur Lemieux suggested they build a stage in the middle of the square. He reasoned, if they were doing this for attention, maybe a stage would make them feel seen. Elsa had to stop herself from laughing. The idea seemed preposterous. Nevertheless, the stage was erected, but the dancing plague only got worse. Within four days, more than 400 citizens of Strasbourg were convulsing in the streets with a fervor that only Gangnam style would ever recapture. Every night, Elsa's father would meet with the other elders, searching for a solution. Meanwhile, she and Peter would watch the dancing on the sidelines, abhorred and helpless. On day five, the elders sent for the Pope. That's how you know things were dire. 
By that time, the dancers were starting to drop like flies, fully unconscious in the square. Elsa and the other unaffecteds ran into the melee, trying to pull the collapsed dancers out for fear they'd be trampled. And then, a woman hit the ground. But unlike the others, she hadn't passed out. After five straight days, she had danced herself to death. The dancing plague of Strasbourg is well-known and somewhat well-documented. Conflicting accounts make it hard to say what happened definitively, but here's what we know for sure. In the summer of 1518, hundreds of people in Strasbourg began dancing uncontrollably and continued for days on end. The craze lasted almost two months. During that time, most of the dancers eventually passed out, but several people reportedly died. Until recently, it was generally believed that the cause of the plague was a fungus in the wheat that caused uncontrollable spasms. But this theory was debunked by John Waller, author of A Time to Dance, A Time to Die. Waller believes that to understand the dancing plague, we have to look at events leading up to the summer of 1518. The people of Strasbourg had recently been introduced to syphilis, and a bad harvest in 1517 led to famine the next summer. These factors created a kind of pressure cooker waiting for a spark. Some might call the plague mass hysteria, but Waller likens it more to a trance, a kind of dissociation caused by overwhelming stress. And while these explanations are scientifically sound, anyone looking at the skies might have called it more than uncanny. For years, Pluto, the planet of death and destruction, had been moving through Sagittarius, a zodiac sign associated with faith and abundance. In 1517, Saturn also entered this sign, moving toward Pluto with brute force. Astrologers saw the alignment as a grim omen for things to come. When Strasbourg's harvest failed a short time later, astrologers saw it as evidence that their predictions were coming true. But that was just the beginning. Around the same time, in nearby Wittenberg, Germany, Martin Luther wrote his 95 Theses, sparking massive religious upheaval. All these symptoms reached a fever pitch that summer when Saturn and Pluto aligned once more. Right on cue, the dancing plague broke out in Strasbourg, lasting about as long as the planets were in one another's orbits. The rare alignment of Saturn and Pluto that occurred in 1518 is what's now sometimes called the paradigm shift conjunction, when an entire society is forced to pivot and reconstruct. And before we dismiss all of the chaos that followed as mere coincidence, we should consider other instances of this exact alignment throughout history. In December of 1284, this conjunction occurred in Capricorn while the Sun was at 21 degrees Capricorn. That year saw tremendous economic upheaval as Italy introduced a coin that would become the standard currency in Europe for over 500 years. 
King Edward I of England took steps to make Wales a province of England. And perhaps most chilling, 1284 was the year the Pied Piper was said to have led rats out of Hamlin to save them from what could have been the earliest form of the bubonic plague. And that's just scratching the surface. Another example of this conjunction may have changed the world forever, and many believe that it is destined to repeat. In a moment, one astrologer changes the course of a war. Hi listeners, it's Carter from ParCast, and I am thrilled to tell you about a new limited series I'm hosting just in time for Father's Day. It's called Devious Dads, and it introduces you to some of the most feared, fraudulent, and fatal fathers in history. Every Sunday on Spotify, discover the men who started out as role models and ended up becoming real-life criminals, like Wall Street financier Bernie Madoff, whose billion-dollar Ponzi scheme destroyed countless families, including his own. Or Marvin Gaye Sr., whose envy and resentment towards his son's successful music career drove him to murder. Each episode of Devious Dads has been handpicked from shows across the ParCast network, shining a light on the men who are far more wicked than wise. This summer, catch a glimpse of the frightening side of fatherhood. Follow the Spotify original from ParCast, Devious Dads. Listen free only on Spotify. Now, back to the story. For the past 800 years, conjunctions between Saturn and Pluto coincided with eerily similar patterns of plague, economic disruption, and religious upheaval on Earth. Yet there's another chapter in Saturn's history in need of unpacking, and it's where our next story begins. It's as messy as they come, concerning Nazis, secret codes, and prophecies. It began on April 20th, 1889, the day Adolf Hitler was born. On the same day in London, a beautiful baby girl also made her way into the world, Helen Gray, who would grow to be an astrologer just like her mother and grandmother before her. By the time she was 10, she knew all the planets by heart. By the time she finished her schooling, she could read natal charts. She became an expert at reading the paths of the planets and often used this skill to plan her own journey. She used astrology to meet her husband Tom when she was 23. She made sure they married on an auspicious day for luck. And she saw a baby in her future long before a child was conceived. But that prediction gave her pause. It was 1912. In a year, Saturn and Pluto would start to conjunct and begin a new cycle. During each of these 30-something year cycles, the world would see war, famine, civil unrest, a rise in nationalism, an epidemic, and economic disruption. She didn't know what part her child would play in this grand scheme, but children born under a paradigm shift conjunction tend to achieve greatness. And so, in 1913, her son John was born. 
The next year, as Saturn and Pluto reached a perfect alignment, World War I broke out. Helen and her husband Tom would listen to the radio night after night, following the news as it unfolded. They taught their son John how to walk in a pitch-black cellar, the sounds of an air raid booming in the distance. In 1918, as the war was ending, the deadly Spanish flu broke out, infecting hundreds of millions of people across the world. John's first toys were kitchen utensils, and anything his father could make from scraps lying around the house as they were quarantined for more than a year. In 1923, when John was 10, Helen began seeing clients, giving readings to those willing to pay her for her astrological expertise. She was nervous about a planetary transit at the end of the decade and spent the next seven years saving as much money as she could. As John grew, he became increasingly skeptical of his mother's beliefs. But across Europe, astrology was becoming more and more popular. That same year, an astrologer published a telling prophecy. A baby, born on April 20th, 1889, would come into power that would not soon be forgotten. John laughed when he read the prophecy in the morning newspaper. He thought of his mother, wondering if she was the golden child. Of course, when Adolf Hitler learned of the prophecy, he was instantly convinced that he was that baby. This gave him the nod he needed to leave his painting career behind and dive headfirst into fascism. Years went by, and everything predicted by the paradigm shift conjunction came to pass. Economic downturn and famine in the 1930s. In Germany, extreme poverty led to a rise in nationalism, with many Germans hungry for leadership that could deliver them from decades of depression. People were starving all over the Western world. Although John and his family were doing all right in London, thanks to the nest egg Helen had spent seven years building up. While the rest of his friends stood in food lines, John was able to continue his studies at Oxford. After, he got a job with the government, working with British intelligence. He wasn't a spy, he was just a specialist. It was during this time that John first heard of Adolf Hitler. Throughout the 30s, Hitler gained popularity in Berlin, rising through the ranks at the Reichstag and eventually assembling his own bully squad of anti-Semitic nationalists in brown uniforms. The news worried and disgusted John, but his colleagues insisted that the Nazis were just a fad. John wanted to believe they were right. But then he found out that Hitler shared the same birthday with his mother, Helen. His thoughts drifted back to that prophecy he read all those years ago about a child born on April 20th, a child that would change the world. John kept his worries to himself for fear of being laughed out of the bureau. And besides, he didn't believe in astrology or prophecies or any of that nonsense. It was uncanny, nothing more. On a cold afternoon in 1939, John popped by his mother's house for tea. This had become a weekly practice since his father passed away some years back. Now, Helen was alone in their quaint flat, just her and her celestial predictions. John hated leaving her to her own devices, so he visited as often as he could. That day, 
Helen showed John a new prophecy in the newspaper. This one was written by Carl Ernst Kraft, a Swiss astrologer. This prophecy predicted that soon someone would try to assassinate Adolf Hitler. Granted, by 1939, a lot of people wanted Hitler dead, so this wasn't completely out of left field. But within a week, the prediction came true. On November 8th, Hitler was giving a speech at the same beer hall where he attempted his first coup. Twelve minutes after he left the hall, a bomb exploded. A German worker had planted it, hoping to kill him. When John learned about the assassination attempt, he wrote it off as yet another uncanny coincidence. But it was enough to convince Hitler that Kraft was the real deal. So he had the seer kidnapped, as one does. From then on, Kraft would be the official astrologer to the Nazi party. Early on in his new job, his predictions helped Hitler win his first skirmish with the Soviet Union. From then on, Hitler trusted him implicitly. A couple hours north of London, in Bletchley Park, John was hard at work on his newest assignment. He was part of a highly trained team that specialized in code-breaking. Since the start of World War II, he and his colleagues had been intercepting and decoding German communication. One code in particular had been nearly impossible to break, the Enigma Code. A truly brilliant cipher, it took more than a month to work out the patterns and transmission settings, but John's team had finally cracked it. Now, they would know the Nazis' every move. They could save hundreds of thousands of lives and perhaps finally end the war. There was just one problem. If the Allied forces suddenly got too good at outmaneuvering the German forces, they'd know right away that their code was hacked and change it. The generals needed a way to get the information to their troops without raising suspicion. It was a problem that John mulled over during his weekly visit home. Helen could sense something was up, but knew her son couldn't talk about work. So she tried to change the conversation. Would you look at this atrocity, she said, handing John the newspaper. The horoscope section, look. This man has no idea what he's talking about. The entire astrological community of England knows he's a fraud, but the newspapers won't stop talking about his book. John reluctantly looked at what was upsetting his mother. Horoscopes written by Louis de Vol. His picture made him look smarmy, like a snake oil salesman. Beneath the photo was the caption, Louis de Vol is known for his publication of Adolf Hitler's star chart. John rolled his eyes. Bet Hitler loves this guy. John stopped short, synapses firing. He had an idea just crazy enough to work. Four rather embarrassing phone calls and two cab rides later, John found himself at Downing Street, the official offices of the United Kingdom's Prime Minister. Winston Churchill swallowed John's proposal with a gulp of whiskey. You want us to hire an Allied Forces astrologer? John shook his head. Not just any astrologer, this one. He handed a copy of Louis de Vol's book to Churchill, flipping to the biography at the back. He claims to be a Hungarian nobleman, the nephew of an Australian conductor, and married to a Romanian princess. But that's all nonsense. I did some digging, and it turns out he's a German refugee. 
he fled Berlin to escape the Third Reich. Now he makes his living giving horoscope readings. I understand he does rather well. People love astrology during a recession, said Churchill. Throw in a war, and I expect you could make an absolute killing. Right, John continued. But I wonder, this time, if we might use it to save some lives. What I'm trying to say is, I'd bet money Hitler reads Louis Duvall's horoscopes, if you get my drift, Prime Minister. Churchill did. You're suggesting that we release false predictions through daily horoscopes to manipulate Hitler? John swallowed. Well, they won't all be false, technically. We can have Duvall predict things we've learned about the Nazis' plans. Then, when our forces are at the right place at the right time, they won't suspect we've cracked their code. No, they'll just think we're mad enough to base our military operations on a horoscope. Churchill took a long, sobering drag on his cigar, quietly mulling over the plan. Well, I suppose he won't be the strangest fellow on staff. And I've been meaning to get my own star chart done. Let's bring him in. Not long afterward, Louis de Vol was on the payroll of MI5. He was given a captain's uniform, a secretary, and his very own office in a government building in Mayfair, London. For the most part, he continued writing horoscopes just as he had before. But on occasion, he was given certain directives, things he should include about Adolf Hitler losing the war or suffering defeat on this day or that. It worked better than anyone could have hoped. In one instance after another, an unfavorable horoscope from Duvall clearly threw Hitler off his game. Soon, John was hearing chatter that Himmler and his cronies were concerned about the Führer's state of mind. To combat Hitler's growing anxiety, Josef Goebbels assembled a team of astrologers charged with creating pro-Third Reich propaganda that would ensure German victory. It was a massive distraction and a waste of dwindling resources. Churchill couldn't have asked for more. One morning, John stopped by his mother's flat before heading into work. He sipped his coffee, patiently listening while she skimmed the newspaper he'd brought her. It was the one with Louis de Vol's horoscopes. Helen still wasn't a fan. John smirked to himself as she read that morning's predictions aloud. Looked like it was going to be a difficult week for the German forces. John believed that wholeheartedly. After all, he was the one who had called Louis and told him what to write. The day prior, John intercepted a German order for an air raid on southern England. He forwarded the information immediately. Allied forces were already moving south, ready to counter Germany's attack. Naturally, Allied commanders asked why they were being moved. To keep the broken Enigma code top secret, the general pointed to Louis de Vol's prediction. Nobody suspected a thing. Louis de Vol unwittingly gave the Allied forces the cover they needed to outwit the Third Reich. These bunk horoscopes played a small but significant part in the war effort. 1945 was the beginning of the end of a 33-year-long Saturn-Pluto cycle, and in April, Hitler's ruling planet Venus moved into Saturn's shadow, signaling that karma was on its way. By the beginning of May, Berlin fell 
and Hitler was dead in a bunker. Today's story was a blend of fact and fiction. John and his mother Helen were invented, but everything about the Enigma Code and Louis Duvall's work for British intelligence was real. The Germans never suspected that the Enigma Code was broken, allowing the brilliant team at Bletchley Park to pass on information that turned the tide of the war. It's now believed that their efforts brought the war to an end at least two years sooner than it might have happened otherwise. What's also true is the numerous coincidences linking planetary alignments and 20th century history, like predictions about Hitler's rise to power and the Saturn-Pluto cycle that occurred between 1914 and 1947. And while coincidences like these are certainly uncanny, it's also important to note that astrologers don't believe these conjunctions determine our fate. Rather, they bring the undertow to the surface, giving us the opportunity to learn from our mistakes and break these patterns. Unfortunately, this is yet to happen. In 1982, a similar conjunction occurred in Libra during a severe economic recession, the short-lived Falklands War, and a plague that is still with us to this day. The AIDS epidemic began under this transit, finding strange bedfellows alongside the Black Death and the Spanish flu of 1918. The most recent Saturn-Pluto conjunction happened in January 2020, right as the sun reached 21 degrees Capricorn. The sky was identical to its appearance in 1284, and all the hallmarks are there. As COVID-19 began to sweep the world, many of us ran to the nearest store to hoard toilet paper only to find ransacked shelves and a newfound demand for dry yeast. The stock markets plummeted and cryptocurrency took center stage. Political parties were pushed to extremes over issues of morality and religious beliefs. The next of these paradigm shift conjunctions will take place in 2053 amidst a decade that scientists and economists believe to be a make or break for humanity. Between climate change, political upheaval, and a predicted currency war, the stage is well set for chaos. But we can choose a different path. The stars may predict our challenges, but we decide our fates. Thanks again for listening to Superstitions. We'll be back next Wednesday with the second part of our Summer Solstice special. For more celestial stories, don't forget to listen to the rest of the Summer Solstice special on mythology, tales, and mythical monsters. And if you're curious about the astrological ideas we touched on in this episode, check out Horoscope Today, another Spotify original from Parcast, which gives a quick daily update on how the stars are affecting each sign of the zodiac. You can find more episodes of Superstitions and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. We'll be back next week with a new episode. Until next time, be wary of the things you cannot explain. Superstitions
Superstitions is a Spotify original from Parcast. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Dick Schroeder, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Erin Larson. This episode of Superstitions was written by Erin Lan, with writing assistance by Andrew Kelleher, fact-checking by Anya Bailey, and research by Erin Lan. I'm Alastair Murden. Hey there, Carter again. As we close out, here's a reminder to check out my new ParCast limited series, Devious Dads. For 10 weeks, we're exposing the men who are far more flawed than fatherly, ruining anyone who stood in their way, even their own families. Follow Devious Dads free only on Spotify.